0: And I tell you, make friends for yourselves by means of unrighteous wealth, so that when it fails, they may receive you into the eternal dwellings. Lord, we were born lost, and through your Son we are now found. More than that, we have been adopted as sons and are now heirs of the kingdom. Through your living word, teach us to live. Through Jesus Christ, your Son, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen.
1: Amen.
0: All right. This uh, parable that we're going to read in Luke 16 is one that I don't struggle with with like in the sense that it's either challenging to faith or something along those lines. For me there were a few lines in here and the story overall I I felt like, you know, I could read this and sort of understand the force behind it, but the story itself, I for a long time struggled just like sort of understand and I'll talk about why, but First, I think it's, it's going to be helpful to look at the context of where this parable is in Luke and where Jesus is at in his kind of, it seems like it's one really big, long sermon. He's telling a bunch of parables. So this parable is in between two other parables where he's talking about the use of wealth. So the parable right before this you have the parable, parable of the prodigal son. And we all like the parable of the prodigal son because he goes out and he uses his father's wealth in a very unrighteous way. He squanders it and then he comes back and we get that we are by nature sinful and unclean. We have nothing to offer God. Yet when we run to him and repent, the father accepts us, right? Back into the fold. So we like that one. We'll also notice right before this, he talks about lost things. So he's got the parable of the lost sheep. That one's pretty simple, too. There's one-for-one one, uh, line lineups. So, like, we're the lost sheep. He's the good shepherd. That's pretty straightforward. And there's some profound stuff in there. But the overall who is what in the parable is pretty straightforward. Uh, the parable of the lost coin. That one's also... Actually, that one kind of reminds me of the parable of the lost treasure. So when a man, he finds a treasure in a field, and then he goes and he sells all he has to get the treasure. So you can kind of apply that in two ways. In one way, it's the kingdom of heaven. Like when we find it, it should give us such joy that we're willing to give up everything we have for that treasure, as we should. But you can also read it as... We are the lost treasure, and Jesus was willing to give up everything he had to win us back. So we've got lost things, including the parable, you might say, instead of the prodigal son, the son who was lost, because that ends with, you know, my son was lost, and he's found again. He was dead, and now he's alive. Right after this one, you've got uh, the rich man and Lazarus. So that's another Another uh, interesting parable. It's uh, unique to Luke, and that's where there's a rich man and the poor Lazarus. And he's at the man's gate, and the man shows the rich man shows such neglect to this person who's homeless and slowly dying in front of his gate. He even steps over him. So it's an obvious example of how not to use wealth. But this one, as we'll see, uh, Everybody's bad in this story, whereas like in the story right before and after it, you have good guys. And even in the parable of the lost son, in the end, he does the right thing. He repents and he comes back to the father. But in this parable, everyone's bad. (laughs) You know, everybody is selfish. And we'll see that Jesus says, so be like that one guy, you know, be like this dishonest manager. So that, also, I kind of wrestled with that, that, okay, how, where is Jesus in this parable? Yeah. So we've been dealing with lost things and the use of wealth. Also in these big, this big stretch of Jesus' teaching, the Pharisees are there. And in this one in particular, I think they feel him admonishing them for two things, not forgiving sinners Because at the parable of the lost son, it's very pointed that you know there's the other son that you really don't talk about until the very end, but that's where the parable ends. That you have the older son who's all angry that the father just accepted him back and is throwing a party. And one thing I I thought recently about that parable, you have this son and he says, "You haven't even given me a young goat." So I can party with my friends. It's not even like the focus on the family. It's still the focus on himself. That I'm following all the rules and I'd like to go party with my friends. It's not even throw a feast with you, dad. So I think the Pharisees are probably, they felt that one. And here, uh, again, he's clearly admonishing them for not forgiving sinners and how they handle wealth. So we have the application, again, of the surrounding. Uh, You're found. So you were found not because of anything righteous you have done, but because of God's great mercy. And now that we're found, here is how you should live. So this use of wealth, you don't, if you're evangelizing to somebody, you don't start with, this is how you should use your wealth as a Christian. (laughs) You know, you start with the gospel of, we're lost, we were sinners, and now we're found through the blood of Christ. And it's the same thing. This is important, just as in Scripture, it's important to distinguish between law and gospel. It's important to distinguish between like, theological implication of the gospel, that we're saved by grace through faith, and then also distinguish between the type of biblical text that is teaching us how to live. So this is the classic distinction between uh, like Paul talking about, uh, in, in Romans, how we're saved by grace through faith, not by works so that no one can boast, and how then you know Luther admitted he was frustrated with James because he wanted it to be more like Paul. You know, where James says, actually your works do matter. You know, and he says you're also justified by works. And in the context of the, if you read through the whole book of James, you totally clearly get the idea that we're saved by the blood of Christ alone. The point is, it's kind of the wisdom application part of the teaching of scripture, where now that you are found, how are you to live? And again, I, this bears repeating It's not that our works save us at all, make us more saved or more justified. But actually, yeah, God does care about the way we live. And here's the application. And living this way is actually good, not just for witnessing, but it's good for your soul. So that's another reason we should care about it. This parable, you can tell right after it, it talks about the Pharisees. So we'll see. It really does cut them to the core. And I think it's telling. He doesn't have to defend the fact that the Pharisees loved money. It's just assumed, and they didn't defend themselves against the claims. It was just clear that they they liked their money. It's kind of similar to how tax collectors were looked at as bad people. Everybody knew it. It was a corrupt system, and by... Choosing to be a part of that system, there was no way around it. There was, there was really no real way to be a tax collector without being uh, corrupt. So he does, no one has to convince anybody that tax collectors were bad. So in the same way, this leaves the Pharisees kind of hot under the collar. Probably not unlike if you have uh, a pastor preaching a little bit of law and preaching against certain sins, if it's a sin that resonates with you, you might feel a little hot under the collar too. And uh, rebuking, I think, is very appropriate from pastors in the pulpit. You know, to actually give some rebukes. And of course, as Lutherans, I think we do this quite well. You get some law in there, and it needs to actually be some law and guidance. But then, of course, you always, you know, and you with it's covered in the gospel. It's covered in the gospel, knowing that we're saved by grace through faith. Also, like I said, uh, this one is tough because there's not one-for-one lineup in the characters. So there's not a character who is the father, and a character who is the son, and a character who is us. It's really, he's just telling a story that has a point, which is, I mean, that is what a parable is. So let's uh, dive into it, and we'll start with, yeah, just chapter 1, Luke 16. He also said to the disciples, there was a rich man who had a manager, and charges were brought to him that this man was wasting his possessions. And he called him and said to him, what is this that I hear about you? Turn in the account of your management, for you can no longer be manager. We'll see that the, the dishonest manager here, he doesn't defend himself against this. It's almost like, you got me. Okay. Uh, it doesn't, and we'll see, I, he's smart, and we will talk about that a lot. He's a smart guy, so uh, he, it's probably not that he was necessarily bad at the business sides of things, but he was squandering his master's wealth. So I would imagine this would be the equivalent of somebody with a relatively high ranking position in a business that makes the big business deals. But while they're on the company's card, flying first class and everything, they are on the side. They are spending it up and having a good time to the point that when the master hears about it, he's like, you're fired. So we'll also, we'll ask this question, why didn't the master just immediately fire him? And the answer is probably, he couldn't. It'd be like, so I heard a commentator say, it might be like, if you're in a lawsuit and you have your attorney and you realize this guy, things just aren't working out. And maybe he is overcharging you or whatever. You can't just fire him on the spot. You're gonna say, sit down with them and say, "Look, I am getting a new attorney, and I need you to turn over all of your notes that you have on the case to the new guy. All right, and then we'll part ways." So, verse can I three. Give a different perspective? Mm-hmm. Yeah, please, and this can this one in particular might be a little bit more of a discussion one if than you business. Do you yep. have a
2: business manager who maybe is not following your idea what you just been for give for presents, and give uh different things but if that person is the driving force in their business and making you very wealthy do you overlook that person's style because they are maintaining your style
0: oh yeah <laughs> yeah <laughs> Even, yeah, well, and in this period,
1: they're not saying
2: they're crooked. They're, just, they're, they're doing things they they the socially those. that yeah, they yeah. should not do. Flying first class, well, maybe they should have went business. business. Um, maybe they stayed at five stars or four stars. But they're not saying they didn't do anything. They still had to go on the trips. So they weren't just going on trips, that weren't producing something. And again, a lot of businesses tolerate a lot of things because people make them money.
0: Yeah, and... So, I remember, I've I've got a business degree, and Mm -hmm. I remember having a speaker come in once who was similar to this in the sense that he was obviously in charge of big accounts. So, he made deals. And when he walked in, he actually did have a presence. And he said, I fly first class, I spend, you know, I go to fancy dinners with clients and things like this, and I really enjoy that but especially the flying flying first class this is how he justified it it's because i need to be in that mindset when i'm making those deals you know i need to know that i'm the guy who makes deals and flying first class is part of that so then the problem is like how far do you take these things and maybe that's you know this is what parables do what wisdom literature does is it makes you think about the nuance of application of these things. But it's interesting how the person doing
2: that then turns around to their staff and <laughs> chastises them <Yeah>. for <laughs> wine or the <coughs> meal, whatever. So yeah. Saying, uh, I can do that, but <coughs> you can't because you're not me. No. Yeah. Hmm. And maybe you should have told the owner what he was going to do. Sometimes owners don't want to know. Yeah, sometimes (laughs) they may not want to know. Deniability is not a a rare version. Yeah.
0: (laughs) Nonetheless, the master here, when he hears the reports and sees the receipts, he says, this guy does have to go. Even if he was making me money, this guy needs to go. So we don't know the full background of this story, but we're painting a picture. Uh, So this manager... Quick quick, quick comment, I think, Mm -hmm.
1: falls into this. Had myself a note here that brought to him the man that the man was wasting his possessions. That's the very word that the, the older brother accuses the younger brother of wasting his father's possessions.
0: Yeah, uh, absolutely, and that's intentional because we just had the parable of the prodigal son. So, this is these all go together. So this isn't, you know how I say almost every week, you can't just read verses, you have to read the full context. This is definitely one of those parables. So I'm glad we've already kind of set the stage. If you only read this parable, it's not that you won't get anything out of it, but there's clearly this tie, right, to the uh, this guy wasting the possessions to the prodigal son wasting his father's possessions. All right, so verse 3 and the manager said to himself what shall i do since my master is taking the management away from me i am not strong enough to dig and i am ashamed to beg so this he's white collar guy probably a little later in his career and he's saying even if i wanted to try to go to be a day laborer to support myself i wouldn't make it you know cuz even that right those quote unquote low income jobs I'm not actually qualified for that. There's plenty of people who can do that. And they wouldn't even want me, even though I'm this fancy guy. And if he fires me, then I've also got this stigma. So he has, he really is in a place in his career where his back is up against the wall. You know, everyone will know he got fired. And he's (laughs) too weak and probably maybe a little old to do the day laborer stuff, so what's he gonna do? And this is kind of a Eureka moment. I have decided what to do, so that when I am removed from management, people may receive me into their houses. So, summoning his master's debtors one by one, and here the debtors, they're gonna be business, uh, people they're doing business with. So yes, technically debtor, but these are tradesmen. And you see, that you, you have these merchants and tradesmen at this time. Uh, like Revelation, we'll talk about this too. Even the destruction of Babylon in Revelation, I think 20, where it's all the tradesmen and the merchants and they're wailing over the destruction of Babylon because they can no longer trade their goods. You know, it's all about the, the earthly wealth. All right, I've decided what to do. So summoning his master's debtors one by one, he said to the first, How much do you owe my master? He said, A hundred measures of oil. He said to him, Take your bill and sit down quickly and write fifty. And he said to another, How much do you owe? He said, A hundred measures of wheat. He said to him, Take your bill and write eighty. So what he's doing, and we'll probably talk about this a little bit more, he's just, obviously he's cutting the debt down of how much they have to pay his master back. So, again, you know, from the beginning, it was pretty straightforward. 100, hundred, oh right, 50. 100, right, 80. And what he's doing is not illegal because he has the authority to settle these accounts. He still has the legal authority over these accounts. So, I mean... Forgery, maybe, but the thing is, it's actually quite legal, and his master's hands are going to be tied, because he's still got the equivalent of the signet ring to make this decision. And so what he's done, it's really quite brilliant, he's giving these guys a really good deal and saving them a bunch of money at his current master's account, so that he can grease the skids. For when he does get fired. And he can then go up to these people and say, remember how much money I saved you? I'm not saying I need the big fancy account because I totally understand how that would look. But you also have to understand my back was up against the wall. So do you have a place for me? And they're going to say, you know what, for what you did for me, yeah, I've got a place for you.
2: The business site. I sell something to you for a hundred whatever. You pay me zero, and I go back in and collect fifty percent. Did I do a good job? Mm-hmm. You're not paying me anything. Don't know if these people are ever going to pay. Just selling something is not enough. Collecting the money is more important, I think. Are, are on. And so when he goes from, you owe me hundred. Pay pay me fifty. And I collected 50, where before I
0: had zero. He's still getting something for the manager.
2: Something. You don't know the background.
0: Yeah, I, so I haven't read, you know, I hadn't read that take, but I don't, I kind of like it. I don't hate it. <laughs> because when you look at like a collection agency, you know, a lot of times they're willing to settle for, I don't know, 50% is because they know in the end If this guy declares bankruptcy, we get zero. Well, at least I could get 50% out of it. Well,
2: you know, I'm going to offend somebody. Basically, if I get to the church one time, that's better the church. Not at all. You don't have to come every Sunday, but if I get you there one time first, then work forward from that, or expose you to Christians, it just, again, it's that exposure. If I can start the process... Because it's hard, but if I
0: get fifty percent
2: of a debt, I am like golden. Yeah, that's healthcare.
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah, ain't that that's that is so true in the healthcare. All right, so verse eight, eight. So the master he hears about what's going on here, and the master commended the dishonest manager for his shrewdness, and we're gonna talk about that word at length. His shrewdness. For the sons of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than the sons of light. And I tell you, and this is so then Jesus just talking to us, make friends for yourselves by means of unrighteous wealth, so that when it fails, they may receive you into the eternal dwellings. One who is faithful in very little is also faithful in much. And one who is dishonest in a very little is also dishonest in much. If then you have not been faithful in the unrighteous wealth, who will entrust to you the true riches? And if you have not been faithful in that which is another's, who will give you that which is your own? No servant can, tr- can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money and they're pretty much all the commentators I listen to they're all sold that we should still translate that Mammon it may be a larger word and it's a transliteration so I, I think it's even Hebrew is Mammon a Hebrew word originally or is it Greek he I'd have to I'd have to look it up so I know in Greek it's Mammon and then it's often transliterated especially in older older, um, uh, translations. And because mammon itself, it's not just the love of money. It's more of the love of the things of this world. So in the true sense of what wealth is, wealth isn't just money, right? It's equity. It's the price of your assets and everything. And then even from a wider sense, mammon, again, it's the, the love of the things of this world that wealth can bring. So, Jesus, once again, just like uh, before this, in, at the end of chapter 14, he talks about the cost of discipleship. And we'll talk about that too. But off the bat, we see that he wants full allegiance. You know? and, and full allegiance is going to pay dividends in the long run. And the more that you try to divide yourself between the things of the world and the eternal things of God just the worse it is for you, you know, it's not necessarily, I mean, all of us, right, we're sinner and saints at the same time, it's not that we're losing our our salvation, but you see that with people, you know, people of the faith you really, really re- admire, <laughs> that are just so focused on the kingdom, I think like, man, I wish I could be more like them, and that's part of the the call of what he's doing here.
2: I looked up w- what language does Mammon come from, and it says it's from er- Era-
0: uh, Aramaic. Aramaic, okay. So very close to Hebrew. I wanna doubt if there is a Hebrew cognate, and then it into Aramaic, and then the Greek transliterates the Aramaic. So th- this is going from language to language, and then in English we also just transliterate it Mammon. But that's really, I feel like that's what that is. It's the love of the things of this world, not just the love of money well also wealth you know, yeah again
2: it's not just money that's one measurement but wealth can mean many things in every culture you're a wealthy man with your family you're a wealthy man because you
0: help people and that's you know what that's it's a good spin on wealth but it is true you know i have many even of my secular friends who would look at me with you know, four beautiful children and say, in that same sense, you know, you're such a, a wealthy person in that sense. And I actually, I actually really like that because, again, two chapters before, Jesus says, and I'm jumping the gun here, we'll come back to this later, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother, fitting my parents are here today. <laughs> Hi, mom and dad. If you don't hate your father and mother, and wife, and children, and brothers, and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. So there's another hard saying. Now, because, right, I see the wince there, we also have to remember, we've already talked about this, the Hebrew idiom of hate and love. So we see that when they use, like, it's not that the word hate in Hebrew doesn't mean hate, but It's used in such a comparison sort of way, and we do this too, You like with foods. You know, I really love this and I hate this Do you really hate that food? No, it's showing preference, and that's really what uh, these Hebrew comparisons do. So the best example, and you'll find the notes in the Lutheran Study Bible, uh, going back to Jacob with Rachel and Leah. So back-to-back verses, it says, Jacob loved Rachel more than Leah, and then in the next verse, it says, when God saw that Leah was hated. Well, it's not that Jacob hated Leah. He just obviously had preference in his, so yeah, he loved Rachel more, but that, you know, again, I always say that's why he was a bad husband, and that's part of the story, you know, it doesn't paint all the patriarchs good all of the time. Even Abraham made some pretty pretty big mistakes. So. So John, but
3: I still don't get verse 9.
0: Verse 9. Oh, we'll we'll get there. Let me flip my page. Yeah, make friends for yourselves by means of unrighteous wealth. So that when it fails, they may receive you into the eternal dwellings. Okay. Um we're we're gonna get there. But first, okay, all the characters again. All the characters are bad. um. Uh, and there's no one-for-one one comparison, because the dishonest, or the master, that's not God. And we're not the, uh, the dishonest manager. Yet, we're supposed to be like the dishonest manager somehow. And it's all going to revolve around this word shrewd, right? We're to be shrewd mm-hmm. like him. Uh, and again, I promise in just a couple minutes I'll get there. I want to make sure we're covering the background, though. So the dishonest manager, what he's doing, you have the charge that he's squandering the riches of his master, and no one disputes it. He's clearly guilty of this. He himself doesn't appear to make his case for his master, even in the sense that I understand I may have been spending a little bit on myself, but I'm good at my job, so I promise I'll cut back on the expenses. He doesn't do that. He realizes he's guilty. And again, technically, this probably isn't forgery because he still has the authority to do this. So it's a brilliant plan. It's wicked and it's deceitful, but it's technically legal. Again, he's greasing the skids for when he does get fired in a couple weeks from now. That these other people that he's helped out will receive him into their, their household or their business. So he'll at least get taken care of. We might think about how Jesus says that all authority on heaven and earth has been given to me. And then in the office of the keys, he then gives us that authority too, as God's as we're supposed to be God's image. and re- And it's our priestly role, right? That we're supposed to represent God to the people and represent the people to God. So as we represent God to the people... And we even proclaim the forgiveness of sins uh, in his name, as usually we and I think rightly, right, reserve this for the pastor in church services, church services that after we confess, he uh, proclaims, in the stead of Jesus Christ, I forgive you your sins." So I had this conversation with, uh, with pastor, uh, Pastor Jim, about the office of the keys, and I said, "Hey, look. I get this is absolutely a very serious thing, so we should take this, well, take it very seriously and not overuse it. But let's say I'm witnessing to somebody, and they come to faith, and it's in that moment they really need to hear that they are forgiven. Would I, as a Christian, as a priesthood of all believers, would it be okay for me to say the same thing, that as a representative of Jesus Christ and upon your confession, I forgive you your sins? Absolutely. And the answer is, yeah, the answer is actually yes. And that's why just as I started this class, the first line was like, sure, I'm just a lay person. And we all are, except for the pastors in here. (laughs) We got two of them. But uh, yeah, but we're all priests. And we could all proclaim that forgiveness. Now, of course, you don't want to, you don't want to overuse this because it's a very serious thing. But at least that should affect the way that we preach the gospel. You know that we are we are his representatives, and he expects us to act like it in our lives. just a, real real quick,
1: whoever sins you forgive it, they're forgiven, okay, that's to everybody. The only reason you can't stand up in front of church and forgive sins of the congregation is you haven't been asked to, the yeah. congregation mm-hmm. asked the pastor to do it, mm-hmm. and that's the only reason you can't, yeah, not that yeah.
0: And I wonder. So here's here's a question. I don't want to get too sidetracked, but when vicar does the liturgy, he doesn't do that. I don't know if anyone else notices that. He doesn't do that. You know, it's only when the pastor does the liturgy. We get a little
1: bit persnickety sometimes. Yeah, we get. So, and this is where I'd
0: say, like, well, you know, I he can preach to us. I still he wish. He can preach to us, but yeah, he can... personally, I I wish that he would because it, especially for visitors you know, hearing that I think is a powerful thing. I think the office of the keys, right? Fancy theology phrase, but I think it's actually a really powerful thing. Yeah. And a lot of my friends from the Navy who have asked me about Bible stuff, uh, in our discussions, I usually bring up the office of the keys. You know, it, I don't only talk about, like, Jesus died for your sins. Of course, of course we cover that. But I think that's it's a pretty powerful thing. So, That's the authority part of it. So we
3: need to understand that our church body does use vicars in certain situations to pronounce that forgiveness and also to consecrate the elements. And it's all linked back to the congregation, usually that doesn't have a pastor and will probably not have a pastor or whatever's going on there, there's no one to serve them. And this vicar comes in And the congregation then gives him the power to do the forgiveness and the consecration of the elements and to serve in that role. And the the church body, the Missouri Synod, says, that's okay. Okay. So, faith could have said, as a congregation, we want the vicar to pronounce to us God's forgiveness when he's in that situation and if he has to do with communion, we want him also to do that, and we would authorize him at that point, he would be able to do that. Just as we've said, if a congregation without a pastor, without a vicar, without anybody, they can ask a person, a man, to go up and do the liturgy, preach the word, and do the sacrament, because this belongs, this power belongs to the congregation, it
0: does not belong to the office of pastor. All right. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> so, all right, more on this guy. Uh, we already covered. The master doesn't follow or fire him immediately because he's got to turn his accounts over. And the manager knows, he, he has this feeling there's still time. There's still time on the clock. But he know, he's heard the judgment and he knows the judgment is coming. So sometimes I think, you know, like we're just so outrageous, (laughs) you know, us humans in general, we might know the judgment is coming, yet sometimes it's like this idea of, well, there's always time to repent later. And I, you know, I've, I've met people like this and heck, I am sure I am guilty of this too at some point. It's like, well, in the future, I'll be able to be more righteous in one way or the other. In the future, I'll be able to use my earthly wealth in a more righteous way. But right now, I'm struggling and I need to focus on myself. You know what I mean? And Jesus is just saying, you should always have eternity on the mind, every day. We talked about the contrast between the prodigal son and this guy, the squandering of the wealth. Um, the former, right, The uh, the son, goes back to his master, his father, And begs for mercy, and the father grants it. But in this parable, the master probably isn't like the father, you know? Even if he begged for mercy, he'd probably say, at most he'd say, I'll give you a severance package, okay? (laughs) But, you know, you're still gone. So part of the force of this, before we talk about how he's being wise, is that You could sum it up like this if you were to be a little um, kind of pointed with it. Sometimes pagans are better at being pagans than you guys are at being Christians. (laughs) You know That if pagans take being a pagan so seriously because they're worried about their future, how much more should we take being a Christian seriously because we're talking about our eternal futures and the futures, the eternity of all the souls that have been put around us? So what can we say except the fact that we love the things of the world? I'm going to jump around just a little bit because I don't want to lose too much time. And already, you know, we had somebody go for, for choir and I didn't get to the <laughs> that line. Um, but so I'll, I'll just drop this in case we lose track of time. The things of this world, that wealth, are because we're in a fallen world, they are by nature not righteous. That doesn't necessarily mean they're bad, but like, again, our, our, our money, our 401ks, our equity, all these things, they're not inherently righteous. They're also not unrighteous, but they're, but it's, you could say, let's be honest, it often is associated with unrighteousness. The things of this world are often so easily misused in unrighteous ways. So you're in this unrighteous system. What are you going to do with it? So I think that line means use the wealth of this world that is inherently not righteous. Use it in a way that's God-pleasing, that wins people for the kingdom. So I think an application could absolutely be, right, use this unrighteous wealth in a way, in righteous ways, whether that's Supporting your church, supporting uh, missionaries, feeding the poor. Uh, Yourself. Yeah, supporting, you know, your, you your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit. So that's the point, and we'll probably come back to that. But in case we get too down a rabbit hole, I wanted to be able to plug that. That That's the point is, again, the use the unrighteous wealth that you have been get, given that's in your stead And use it for eternal means. Not to store up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy, where thieves break in and steal. But rather, store up for yourselves treasures in heaven. Because where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. So, that's the point. But I want to talk about this word, shrewd. All right. In Greek, we're, we're going to talk Greek, and we're going to talk about the Septuagint, my favorite topic, as you know. In Greek, it's phronimos. This word shrewd is phronimos, and it is, in other times, translated wisdom. So I'll give you some examples. Uh, but first, you know, okay, phronimos. Shrewd isn't bad in context here, but it's sensible, thoughtful, prudent, and yes, even wise. It's, I think, the most basic, if you had to put it into a word in English, smart. It's the word smart. So this person really gets it. Maybe it's, in this case, kind of street smarts, but this deceitful manager is smart. Uh, A couple chapters before this in Luke 12... You have, uh, verse 35, 12, 35, let's see, where you must stay ready. Uh, It's the same word here when he talks about, uh, let's see, stay dressed, be like men waiting for the master to come into the wedding feast. Blessed are the servants whom the master finds and stays awake when he comes. Truly I say to you, he will dress himself for service and have them recline at table. And he will come and serve them. If he comes in the second watch or in the third and finds them awake, blessed are those servants. But know this, that if the master of the house had known at what hour the thief was coming, he would not have left his house to be broken into. You also must be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. Uh, So Peter said, Lord, are you telling this parable for us or for all? And the Lord said, Who then is the faithful and wise manager? That's the same word. So here it's wise. Whom the master will set over his household to give them their portion of food at the proper time. So in this case, that master is the one who was ready. Who didn't say, oh, my master, he's going to come way in the future or whatever. So I can really just take it easy now. No, it's the one, the wise master of the household, or the wise servant of the household, is the one who stayed awake and was ready. So that's also phronimos. In Proverbs, this is where we go to the Septuagint. Uh, In Proverbs chapter 14, a servant who deals wisely has the king's favor, but his wrath falls on one who acts shamefully. So there's phronimos, right? Wisely. Also Proverbs 17, a rebuke goes deeper into a man of phronimos, of understanding Than a hundred blows into a fool. Matthew 10. Behold, I am sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. So be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. How should we be phronomos like serpents? Right? To be wise as serpents? My parents got to meet our pet snake yesterday. (laughs) Uh, So how is our, our... He's a double entendre. We're going to talk about him in a future class, actually. But how is our snake, right, Phronimos? How should we be like him? Isn't it? And here's this is the fun part. Isn't it interesting that Jesus says you should be as Phronimos as serpents? Guess who else in the Septuagint was Phronimos? Yeah. Yes, <laughs> another snake of ours. In Genesis chapter 3, the serpent was more phronomos than any other creature. In fact, I'm going to go there, and we'll see how he is. He's deceitful, but it's like, you got to hand it to him. He's smart. He's wicked, and he's deceitful, but he's smart. So here it is. Genesis 3. Now, the serpent was more crafty, is how it gets translated here. You could go to the Hebrew, you know, and you could look up that word, and it's also, it's basically the same. That word that in here, the ESV translates crafty. I'm not saying that's wrong, uh, but there's else plenty of other times where that Hebrew word will even get translated wise. He's smart. He was smarter than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And then we know how the rest goes down. They have this this back and forth. And then she sees that the fruit was good. And she takes it. And then you'll see that get repeated, you know, time and time again. that, That to set up testing narratives in the Old Testament. Someone will see that something is good and they take it. But the snake asks, right? Did God actually say? And you've probably seen this application correctly in the modern world quite a bit with churches that go awry and eventually turn apostate that are worshiping human power structures and political, right? Churches that turn into political arms of one party or the another or, another, or something like that. They take these texts and they say, well, did God actually mean this? No, because if God actually meant this, then he would have, you know, done X, Y, or Z. You know, these are, they're just stories. They're, they were written for the people at their time, whatever it is. So the snake in the garden is not unlike our parable here. Where the manager says, you know, he didn't actually say I was fired yet. He didn't actually say that I couldn't go out and do these things. So he takes his legal authority, he runs out, and he prepares for the future. Because he recognizes there's still time. So sometimes, you know, with the modern church, and I feel this too, sometimes we will have this attitude or feeling of defeatism. Because we, I think rightly, we read Romans 1, and we can see this in our very, na- in our very nation. Uh, so Paul, I've, we've talked about this before, when we uh, covered the plagues, we saw that um, God gave them up to the lusts of their hearts to impurity. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind. And we will look at it, at the world, and we'll say, uh, well, that's right."ly that's kind of the way our nation is going, slowly. Uh, So we might feel like it's over, and it's more comfortable to just sit back and let what happens, happens. So although it's proper to confess God's sovereignty in things, knowing he will limit evil in the end, um, it's also expected of us to recognize that there is still time left on the clock. And we should be shrewd. We should be phronimos considering eternal things. Sinful people <laughs> will go to extreme lengths to secure their own future in clever, well-thought-out, often ingenious ways. They'll do anything to secure this worldly future. We have investment strategies, marketing techniques, payment plans, uh, asset acquisition schemes, and the question the world asks isn't, is it right? The question they ask is, can I get away with it? You know? And sometimes, I, you know, is that the way we treat our own sin? Uh, it's almost like, well, you know, there's still time left on the clock, and can I get away with it? You know, and Jesus is kind of telling his disciples, you need to daily stay focused on eternal things. So once again, Jesus says they are more phronomas than we are, <laughs> considering eternal things. As Martin Luther says, Whatever you put your heart and your trust in, that is your God. So we should make sure that God is our God and not, not the things of this world. Definitely, we don't want to become slaves to the system of the world or to earthly wealth. I think, I don't know if it was Dave Ramsey, you know. I, when we talk about Dave Ramsey, there's two, uh, there's two sides to Dave Ramsey. There's the side that, where he talks to people in debt. And he tries to get him out of debt. But once he's out of debt, you know, there's this side of Dave Ramsey that's really quite brilliant in investment and saving for the future and using your wealth well, you know. And so like for this side, Ramsey will say, cut up your credit cards. And for this side, he says, maximize your credit card use to maximize those percentages in cash back. Just pay your bill every month, and then you never pay the credit card company a dime. But you can make anywhere from 2 to 6% on literally everything you buy. So then the question is, how do you use that 2 to 6% on the interest you make, you know, in a, in a, in a godly way? Uh, so, yeah, you can become a slave to, the mon- to, to money, to mammon. Or you can make the things of this world that have been entrusted into your care you can use them in a godly way, and you can even then, I've heard this term, use money to be a slave to you and your means. So I'm not saying that, like, (laughs) uh, it's a biblical principle necessarily to maximize interest, because, in fact, when we think about God's economy, there shouldn't be any interest. If you look at the Old Testament, interest was essentially forbidden. Uh, When you lent money, you weren't supposed to charge interest on it. But is there any way to work in our current economy to do anything without the use of interest? Of course not. It's everywhere. So the money we have, even if you just stick it in a checking account, is technically earning interest. You know, should you write your bank and say, yeah, 0.025%. So here's, you know, like, okay, this isn't going to become an economics lesson. But I recently opened up a high-interest savings account. So all the money I have, I like minimize the amount that's in my checking account, and I'll put as much as I can in a, in the savings account that at least makes four and a half percent. And then we maximize the CDs, which are also essentially savings account. And you make five and a half percent on those. But like, you know, you're in this you're in this world, so you should at least use it in a smart way. And then everything that God has entrusted into your care, right? You should pass it through this filter of, is this a God-pleasing thing?
3: That think goes along with the parable, of don't bury your money in the ground and
0: get nothing. Huh? Yeah, yeah. And obviously that parable, and this is how they work, there's lots of different applications here. This is how wisdom literature works. So in the parable of the talents, where the guy at the end just buries it, uh, the reason the master, when, I, when we're little, we hate this idea. You know, It's like, well, what if he did lose it? Well, the master actually probably wouldn't have been angry if he at least legitimately tried doing something with it and said, <clears throat> okay, I made a bad decision and I actually lost, I, I thought it was a good investment, but it actually lost money. The master would have been less angry there because the point was he, was, he would have actually been doing something with it. And there too, another thing that often bothers, you know, when I was younger, it really bothered me how the master said, take that talent and give it to the one who has 10. It's like, well, he's already gotten plenty, right? (laughs) So when in that parable, the talents, when they, the part of it that represents faith and okay, what do we do with our faith? When we really make our faith active, God loves to bless his people. You know, so the one, and this is what Jesus says there, the one who has more, even more will be given. You know, the one who has faith and wants more faith and prays for wisdom and prays for more faith, that's going to be given to him. But the one who has faith and then squanders it, even that's going to be taken away. So I think in the end, it's kind of, it's the same application of the text. So, few minutes left, back to here. I thought we were going to burn through this. But back to that first line. I'll read it verbatim. And I tell you, make friends for yourselves by means of unrighteous wealth, so that when it fails, they may receive you into eternal dwellings. So yeah, it's almost literally, right, buying in the sense that money changes hands, just like when we talked about slavery, the slavery laws. Yeah, money changed hands, which is why that verb to buy was used, even though it probably was the wrong verb. But buying friends for heaven, supporting the kingdom of, you know, of God in this world by means of the system, the kingdom of the world. So supporting the kingdom of heaven by means of the kingdom of the world, since we live in the kingdom of the world right now. And again, don't let pagans be better at being pagans than we Christians are at being Christians. Is the parable pure law that Jesus is
1: speaking to the Pharisees who are lovers of money? And remember, there's a little Pharisee in every one of our hearts.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Is, the, is the parable pure law?
0: I don't think it's pure law.
1: Where where, uh, do, you see, where do you see gospel?
0: The only so uh, in in that in there so um, even just the the fact that he's talking about eternal things implies that eternal things are ours. Okay. So well, I you there's know, some
1: implication, but <laughs> yeah.
0: <laughs> but for the uh, most
1: part, it's pure law.
0: Yeah, and and it is, and so one thing speaking with, to us. Yeah, totally, and we say law in the sense that the word Torah which we know right? means law, we often talk about the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Old Testament, as the Torah. But I think the word Torah is probably better translated as instruction. So although like, as Lutherans we say law and gospel, and that's great, and we talk about law solely as like we only focus on the condemnation that it pronounces on us because we're sinners, um, law is also instruction on how life works best. It's instruction on the way that God wants us to live as Christians. And we shouldn't only look at it as, we don't do this perfectly, so we're condemned. We should actually look at it in a way that we apply it to our lives. Yeah.
3: But I'm still confused, because it seems like it's telling you to do something worldly, but you're going to have eternal
2: treasure. But how do you get eternal treasure by acting worldly?
0: Well, it's using the things of the world in righteous ways that have implications on eternity.
1: That flow from faith.
0: That flow from faith. Because again, we are lost and found already. So then this, like James, is talking to us about how we should live. A good example of a person living this out is
3: Joseph in the Old Testament. Because he comes in as a slave, and yet he is going to be over, he's going to do his job with all this is earthly stuff. He does the best he can with earthly things so that he his God would be honored through his service. And of course, when he's threatened by the wife of his master to come in and, and have sex with her, you know, he runs away. He's not going to do that. And he's thrown into prison for that, but he keeps his he keeps working on the earthly things giving, giving uh, meaning to, to dreams and things like that. And in the seven years, he's using all earthly things so that he might provide, government might provide during that next seven years, food. I mean, so this is a good example of faithfulness and faithful using of earthly things.
0: Yeah, Joseph was phronomos. <laughs> he was phronomos. And, you know, so then we should also remember that things of the world... Uh, just like the world in general, God's going to make a new heaven and a new earth. The things of the world are not bad. Now, because we live in a fallen world, of course there is this very real unrighteousness that exists in everything that the world does. Or at a minimum, I would say, that isn't inherently righteous, right? So.
2: God gives us blessings that are things of this world.
0: It, yeah, exactly. He not yeah. I said, um, here's one that, <laughs> you know, sometimes there's, <clears throat> oh, I don't know the word I'm looking for, uh, saying things in kind of a provocative way. But if on one side you have mammon, the love of money, and on the other side you have true, you know, a, a righteous way, that a righteous sense of not caring at all about, only caring about having, heavenly things, so loving money and hating money, you might as well try to hate your money <laughs> because, because we are by nature so sinful and unclean. We by nature love money. I I will fully admit, right? I by nature love money. And I think the exception applies to me that, well, I worked hard for, and it's true, I did work hard. I was in, right? I earlier we said I was an indentured servant for six years. It was a hard job to get the skills that I have now so that I can have this job and all these things. But it's like, you might as well try to hate your money because you're not going to be able to do it. Yeah. But (laughs) yeah, yeah, you know, so as much as that, you know, again, kind of um, sarcastic attitude can help focus us on the things of the world. That's That's, um, the focus here is we are stewards of a whole lot. So God's entrusted us with a lot of things, whether it's the wealth of the world and money or with children, you know, with family, whatever it is. So yeah, we we ought to use that in a godly way. We've been set free and we are sons of the king. And our hearts should be set on things that moth and rust cannot destroy. I'm going to end with a single quote oh, go ahead.
1: Uh, just real quick. A love of money is really love of self. I can take care of myself. So the, cha- the challenge is, you going to serve God or are you going to serve self?
0: Yeah. 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 All right, end with a we're a minute or so over time. End with a uh, quote from St. Bede who I think it was commentary on this text. Then let the covetous hear this, that we cannot serve at the same time Christ and riches. Yet he says not who has riches, but who serves riches. For, he, for who is the servant of riches, watches them as a servant. But he who has shaken off the yoke of servitude, dispenses them as a master. But he who serves mammon, verily serves him who is set over the earthly things as the reward of his iniquity and is called the prince of this world.